Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. For we, in our afflictions and dangers, will naturally and reflexively protect ourselves. But he so feared and trembled for his children that he sent to them Timothy, whom alone he had for his consolation. Every episode would bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're going way back to the 4th century in Constantinople. Christostom is who we're listening to today. Troy, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's a great uh, day. Joel, we're how's doing your, a really... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. How, how's your Christmas shopping going? <laughs> I've done exactly zero of that. And uh, I do think Elise and I know what we're going to have. We're going to have maybe, maybe, maybe our, a joint Christmas present, which we never do. We'll probably still get each other something small, but we might be able to do uh, you know, like a little koi pond going in the back of our yard, which is not very expensive Whoa. where we are. So we're hoping that will come together. So yeah, be the like kiddos would Christmas like that, present. I feel like. It'd be really cool, bring the yard together. So it's very cheap where we are, so it's not something we would normally think about. But it's actually already in place. They just need to fix the leak in it. So if nice. that works out, we'll have a koi pond. I mean, nice. Uh, Joel, how's things going for you? <laughs> good. Good, man. I'm on top of Christmas shopping today. I was snatching up Cyber Monday deals left and right, Black Friday deals. I got like half my go. shopping done. I'm good to go. Congratulations, Joel. Well, way to be on it. It's a terrible time to mention that uh, the guy we're going over today, Joel, is all about not having material goods and lived an ascetic life. But we'll we'll uh, we'll just go ahead and open that episode about this monk who lived (laughs) uh, who lived that life with our Christmas shopping. It's about giving, Um, not getting, Troy. It's about giving. Um, by the way, we have this episode coming out on Chrysostom right now, and then right at the beginning of the new year, if everything works out, we will have an episode on another church father. You just mentioned, uh, when we, before we started recording, you mentioned Augustine, who was a contemporary of Chrysostom. They're very, very contemporary. like They were lived very much at the same time. And we have another guy who's a contemporary of theirs who's very, very important that nobody ever talks about. I am so incredibly excited about the episode that we're going to have that's going to be coming up very soon. Very Oh man, it's gonna be great. There's we got some great episodes coming out, and this one is gonna be just I can't believe that this sermon even exists and that we have this sermon. So I cannot wait. But we're gonna jump into Chrysostom, who's also great, and I also can't wait to talk about John Chrysostom, born in 347 AD in Antioch, Syria. His name, and if you don't know about Chrysostom, this is this is the fun party fact to bring uh, to bring up in parties. Chrysostom's not his real name. It means golden mouth, and it was a nickname that he got because he was such an amazing speaker, which is a pretty high praise. Pretty cool, pretty cool uh, nickname to people call you gold golden mouth. Golden mouth. Hey, golden mouth. That's, yeah, that's I mean, pretty, if I, they I called that. us uh, Revive Thoughts the Golden Podcasters, right? In an age of podcasters, right. that would be a pretty cool one. If you guys want to get that started for us, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> in an age where Ambrose and Augustine and so many other people were in this era, him being called Golden Mouth is pretty high praise. Again, there was there were some greats that were contemporaries of him, um, but he gets the name Christostom. He gets the name Golden Mouth. He was born under a high-ranking uh, military father in, in a military fam- family in Rome at the time. However, at a fairly young age, his father died, and his mother, at a young age, was uh, considered a, a highly virtuous woman. And we don't really know what her belief system was like, whether she was a devout Christian. Others say she was an upstanding pagan. 
but it was clear that she wanted Chrysostom to do well and devoted her life to seeing him succeed. She was a good mother from all accounts. Where Chrysostom ends up getting raised is Antioch. We don't really see it this way today, but I think it's important to remember Antioch was at its time a big, important city. Uh, Today, it'd be like saying someone is raised in Seoul or LA, some big metropolitan that is well-connected to the world. Uh, He was tutored by this famous pagan who had been a professor either, you know, in Athens and Constantinople. So this guy knew his stuff. He was a pretty big deal. And he took on Chrysostom. And uh, this guy was big on speaking and, you know, being able to present well and to have this great rhetoric behind him, uh, which, of course, probably helped lead to Chrysostom himself being such a great speaker. Now, according to rumor, his pagan tutor really looked up to Chrysostom. And the rumor is, on his deathbed, he said, this guy, Chrysostom, would have been my successor had the Christians not taken him from us, which is a pretty cool testimony in and of itself. Despite despite starting a career as a lawyer, Chrysostom felt called to study theology instead. At the time, in this part of the world, that meant becoming an ascetic monk, becoming somebody who uh, basically gave up everything um, just wearing humble clothing, uh, not eating food for these crazy amounts of time, um, fasting, living a hermit lifestyle. This was all what it meant to be a follower of God uh, to them. It wasn't even just like, these are the extreme versions. This is what most of them were going through. Another example at this time, by the way, is Basil, who lives in a similar area, another contemporary, and he's doing some of the same stuff that Chrysostom here is doing. Now, Chrysostom, he went through these different trials where you just live on your own, you sit in the desert, you live in these harsh conditions, you refuse food. Uh, He did all this for about six years. Yeah, being out in the desert didn't uh, help Chrysostom. He was was a city guy. He wanted the the luxuries, the the amenities of being in a city. Uh, And that harsh life out in the desert uh, was not, not terribly good for him. His body, you know, ended up giving way and he had to return primarily for health reasons, it would seem like, especially the fasting would actually give him stomach ailments that uh, he carried with him the rest of his life. When he returned to Antioch there, he was uh, quickly made a priest and was soon preaching in the churches there in Antioch. And people loved his sermons. They passed him around to other cities. They'd, they'd talk about him. Uh, they were humorous and intelligent. And he attacked the rich and the poor alike, which was something that was very uncommon in that era, and he called everyone to follow God. In his third year of doing this, there was a giant riot that erupted in the city. And, you know, people point fingers at what was the cause. You know, some blame this worship of statues that was going on. Others blame tax that was levied. Uh, But either way, imperial leaders responded by invading the city and killing people uh, to, to swell the riots that were happening during this time. And the religious leaders looked to be targets in this. You know, maybe they were, it almost seems to me like they were maybe seen as part of the cause of what was going on there. Uh, so the Archbishop of Antioch went to Constantinople to try to seek a pardon so he could come back and say, hey, we are protected. You can't kill us uh, in this imperial uh, attempt to regain control of the city because uh, they genuinely thought their life was under threat of being killed by this uh, attack force that was there. So the archbishop left to get a pardon from the emperor in Constantinople, hoping to kind of make the case, hey, we don't deserve to be killed. This was kind of an accident. This is a misunderstanding gone too far. In the meantime, while the archbishop is gone, Chrysostom begins preaching to the crowds to calm them down, get them under control for God in the riots, 
uh, one of his famous lines was he would just say, improve yourselves now, truly, not as when during one of the numerous earthquakes or famine or drought or similar bad things happen, you leave off sinning for three or four days and then go back to the old life, but truly improve yourselves now. When the pardon came back, he became very popular and everyone wanted to hear him preach. You know, he was the guy who got them through this and this whole thing worked out for everybody. Now, it's interesting. Almost the exact same year this riot is happening. There's another great riot happening. Not great for It goes back to that episode I can't wait for you guys to hear about. I mean, I'm just really excited about that one. All right. Now, he preached about social sins. This is Chrysostom. He's preaching about social sins. He saw abortion, gluttony, prostitution, gambling. He wants... Uh, he, he went after everything he could. I mean, you heard him earlier saying like, oh, you guys act nice after an earthquake, hoping God will be nice to you, but then he sinned three days later. He once claimed that people clapped for a sermon sometimes when they were over, but when he, they went to the horse races, that's when you truly saw them cheering, and that's when they also showed you what they cared about. Apparently, people would go to church and then afterwards go gamble at the horse races, and he was pointing out that they had a lot more passion for the church, the horse races and gambling than they did for time in church. Now, he would struggle on some level with discouragement. Uh, his sermons could range anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. Uh, but sometimes he said he felt like a man trying to, when he preached to the people, he felt like a man trying to wash a path, but he only had muddy water kept running over it. So every time he was trying to get it clean, more muddy water would come and leave mud back behind on the dirty path. But despite that, he said the one thing that gave him the strength to keep going was preaching God's word was the only thing that kind of gave him strength to do what he did. Yeah, and this worked well. He was he was happy. Life was good for a, a good period of time until the year 398, and that's when everything changed. He was so well-respected and so well-loved and so good at what he did that against his will, under imperial plot, he was forcibly taken by soldiers away from Antioch to Constantinople, where he was made the new archbishop. They, want, they wanted him to be the archbishop of Constantinople, and uh, basically didn't give him a choice and it said, you're going to come here and you're going to be our, our archbishop. And again, this was done against his will. He, he didn't want to do this. He was forced to do it. But he assumed that God had some reason for why the government had done that. And they had done it because the government officials decided that the capital city should have the best orator. The problem was the thing that made him so popular in Antioch was also the thing that's going to get him in real trouble in Constantinople, right? He's continuing to preach against social ills and depravity and sinfulness, again, especially to the elite and the rich as well, which is not flying very well in Constantinople. There's this excerpt from a sermon that he's preaching to masses in regards to a, oh man, this is this is probably some of the, the most not safe for work uh, stuff that we're. Re I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to. Uh, Ooh, I didn't think about that. Not That's so true. graphic, but essentially, he's he's preaching to people that after they've seen a uncensored performance at a theater, I guess would be maybe that. Yeah, that's that's vague enough. Uh, he says. Quote, long after the theater is closed and everyone has gone away, those images, and he's referring to the, the women uh, that were on stage, they still float in your soul. Their words, their conduct, their glances, their walk, their positions, their unchaste limbs. And there within you, she kindles your Babylonian furnace in which the peace of your home, the purity of your heart, and the happiness of your marriage will be burnt up. Which is a very poetic way of saying, yeah, this this affects everything in your life. 
And the public, as you can imagine, did not like his his accusations, his ridicule of, of their lifestyles and the way that they chose to entertain themselves. And they rejected it. And within five years, they had him disposed under false charges and exiled. At this time, the church is split, uh, is at least beginning a split um, that will continue onward. So he's going to the capital of that side of the Roman Empire, Constantinople, and he's getting you know exiled. So he reaches out to Rome for help, and they try to help him get reinstated, but it doesn't work out. Still, though, he finds that being in exile isn't that bad. It was very hard to get there. A summer's journey, they didn't take good care of him. He, he got very sick along the way, but he was able to spend more time writing letters and correspondence with people that he had influence over in Antioch and Constantinople, and he was able to be a big support for their ministry. Kind of reminds you of Paul in Rome, right? He's, ah, you know, I'm in chains, but I'm able to write all these letters and still be very much involved in what's going on. He was too involved with what was going on, and the church wasn't happy with how involved he was still. So they were like, well, let's make it harder for him to be involved. Uh, we're going to move him and exile him even further out. They take him to basically the edge of the Roman Empire, way out, way to the edge of the Black Sea. However, he was an exhausted, exhausted older man at this point. He's struggling with sickness. His health had never been good since the severe fast he did when he was younger, and he died on the journey to where they were taking him out to. 31 years later, Chrysostom's enemies had pretty much died off, but those who faithfully remembered him brought back his bones, had him buried in a special honorable place. He had not convinced the powerful to follow God, but those younger ones who remembered his sermons and remembered the things he said and remembered how much of it turned out to be true, they were the ones and the generations that acknowledged his amazing achievements and his speaking and made him uh, famous throughout the world. In this sermon, we hear Chrysostom talk about the love Paul had for his people and compare it to the love Joseph had for his enemies. Now let's see and listen as a man who had a great love for his own people uh, shows us how to attempt to emulate that kind of life. For this cause I also, when I could no longer wait, sent that I might know your faith, lest by any means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. But when Timothy came to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you have good remembrance of us always, longing to see us even as we also to see you, for this cause, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our distress and affliction through your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. A question rises before us today, which is often argued. But what is this question? For this cause, he says, when I could no longer wait, I sent Timothy that I might know your faith. What do you say? He who knew so many things, who heard unutterable words, who ascended even to the third heaven, doesn't he know what's happening in Thessalonica? even if he's in Athens. And yet the distance is not far, nor has he been long separated from them. For he says, being separated from you for a short season, he does not know the affairs of the Thessalonians, but is compelled to send Timothy to know of their faith, lest, he says, the tempter had tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. Did the saints know all things? It would seem from Scripture we can see that they didn't. 
and this one might learn from many instances, both of the early ones and of those who came after them. As Elisha did not know concerning the woman, 2 Kings 4.27, as Elijah said to God, I only am left and they seek my life. And he heard from God, I have left me 7,000 men. Samuel again, when he was sent to anoint David, the Lord said to him, Do not look on his appearance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 And this comes to pass through great care on God's part. Why? For the sake both of the saints themselves and of those who believe in them. For just as he permits that there should be persecutions, so he permits that they should also be ignorant of many things. This is so that they may be kept humble. On this account also, Paul said, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to hinder me that I should not become overly exalted. 2 Corinthians 12.7 And again, lest other people should be swept away in great imaginations concerning them. For if the heathen thought that they were gods from their miracles, how much more if they had continued always knowing all things? And again, hear Peter, when he healed the lame man, saying, Why are you looking at us, as if by our own power or godliness we had made him walk? Acts 3.12 But for another, another reason, too, these things were allowed. For that no one might be able to say it was a being other than men that they performed those excellent actions. For this reason he is ignorant of what is happening in Thessalonica. For this reason also, after having made it his purpose, he frequently does not come to the places he intends to go, that they might perceive there were many things he did not know. Great advantage then came of this. For if there were some yet saying, This man has the power of God, which is called great, Acts 8.10. Without these instances, we could be tempted to think that these were no longer humans. But here, however, there seems to be a condemnation of them. But quite the opposite. It even shows their admirable conduct. How? Think about it. For if you first say that we are appointed and let no man be moved, why do you need to send Timothy, fearing that something might happen which you would not wish? This indeed he does from his great love. For those who love suspect and worry about even those things which are safe from the place of their love. But this is caused by their great anxiety. For I said that we are appointed, but the excess of the temptations alarmed me. He has not said, I sent him to condemn you, but when I could no longer wait, which is an expression of his love. What does he mean, lest by any means the tempter had tempted you? Do you see that to be shaken in afflictions comes from the devil and from his seduction? For when he cannot shake us personally, he takes another way, and shakes the weaker sort to get to us, just as he did in the case of Job, having stirred up his wife. Speak some word against the Lord, she says, and die. See how he tempted her. Paul did not regard afflictions nor plots against him. For what I can tell, I think that he then remained there, as Luke says in Acts, that he stayed in Greece three months when the Jews had already laid a plot against him. But his concerns were not for his own dangers, but for his disciples. Do you see how he surpassed even natural parents? 
For we, in our afflictions and dangers, will naturally and reflexively protect ourselves. But he so feared and trembled for his children that he sent to them Timothy, whom alone he had for his consolation, his companion and fellow laborer, and him too in the very midst of dangers. That our labor, he says, should be in vain. Why would he say that? For even if they were no longer following God, it was not through your fault nor through your negligence. But nevertheless, if this were the case here, I think, from my great love of the brethren, that my labor had been rendered vain, lest by any means the tempter had tempted you. But he tempts, not knowing whether he will succeed. Since he never knows if he will succeed, he always strikes with all that he has. We know that we can overcome him when trusting in God, but we should always be watchful for him. We know that he does attack us, even if he does not know the outcome, and this was shown in the case of Job. For that evil demon said to God, Have you not made a hedge about his things within and his things without? Take away his goods, and surely he will curse you to your face. Job 1, 10, 11. He makes trials for us if he sees anything weak. He makes an attack against you, but if you are strong, he desists. Let us all hear how Paul labored. He does not say works, but labor. He does not say they were lost, but our labor is lost. But it did not happen, and they were in awe. These things indeed we expected, he says, but the opposite happened. For not only did we receive from you no addition to our affliction, but even comfort. But when Timothy came to us and brought us good news of your faith and love, brought us good news, he says, do you see the excessive joy of Paul? He did not just say the news, but brought us good news. So greatly did he think of their steadfastness and love. For it was necessary that the one remaining firm, that the other also must be steadfast through trial too. And he rejoiced in their love, because it was a sign of their faith. And that you have, he says, good remembrance of us always, longing to see us even as we long also to see you. That is with praises. Not when we were present, nor when we were working miracles, but even now when we are far off and are scourged and are suffering numberless evils, you have good memories of us. Hear how the disciples are admired, who have good memories of their teachers, how they are called blessed. Let us imitate disciples like these, longing to see us, he says, as we also long to see you. And this too cheered them, for him who loves, to perceive that the beloved person knows that he is beloved is a great comfort and consolation. For this cause, brothers, we were comforted over you in all our distress and affliction through your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What is comparable to Paul, who thought the salvation of his neighbors was the same as his own? If you can say you have loved others to this same level, speak up now. I'll take it further. Who has even thought of loving others to that level? He did not require them to be thankful to him for the trials which he suffered for them, but he was thankful to them that they were not shaken on account of his own trials. As if he was saying that to you rather than to us was an injury done by these trials. You were more tempted than we were. You who suffered nothing rather than we who suffered. 
Because, he says, Timothy brought us this good news. Now we feel nothing of our sorrows, but are comforted in all our afflictions. Not in this affliction only, for nothing else can touch a good teacher as long as the affairs of his disciples are on his mind. Through you, he says, we were comforted. You confirmed it to us. And yet the reverse was the case, for that when suffering they did not yield, but stood as men, this was sufficient confirmation of the faith to the disciples. But he reverses the whole matter and turns the praise over to them. You have anointed us, he says. You have caused us to breathe fresh air again. You have not suffered us to feel our trials any more. For he says, now we live. This is how teachers are to be affected when they work with their disciples. Then, further softening the expression, see what he says, verse 9, 10. For what thanksgiving can we render again to God for you? For all the joy which we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and may perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Not only, he says, are you the cause of life to us, but also of much joy, and so much joy, that we cannot worthily give thanks to God. Your good behavior, he says, we consider to be the gift of God. Such kindness you have shown to us that we think it actually comes from God. Yes, and it is of God, for such an attitude of the mind comes not of a human soul or carefulness. Night and day, he says, praying exceedingly. This, too, is a sign of joy. For as any farmer, hearing concerning news about the state of his land, longs with his own eyes to see the pleasant sight of heads of grain growing well, so Paul longs to see Macedonia. Praying exceedingly, observe the excess in his language, that we may see your face and may perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Here there is a great question. For if now you live because they stand fast, and Timothy brought you good news of their faith and love, and you are full of so much joy as not to be able to fully give thanks to God, how do you say here that there are deficiencies in their faith? Were those then the words of flattery? By no means. Far be it. For previously he testified that they endured many conflicts and were no worse affected than the churches in Judea. What then is it? They had not yet enjoyed the full benefit of his teaching, nor learned all that it was necessary for them to learn, and this he shows toward the end of his letter. Perhaps there had been questionings among them concerning the resurrection. And there were many who troubled them, not by temptations, nor by dangers, but by acting the part of teachers. This is what he says is lacking in their faith. And for this reason, he has so explained himself, and has not said that you should be confirmed, where indeed he feared concerning the faith itself. I have sent, he says, Timothy to confirm you, but here to perfect that which is lacking, which is rather a matter of teaching than of confirming. As also, he says elsewhere, that you may be perfected for every good work. From 1 Corinthians 1.10 or 2 Timothy 3.17, Now the perfected thing is not one in which there is some little deficiency, for it is that which is brought to perfection. Verse 11.12 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and toward all men, even as we also do toward you. This is proof of absolute love, that he not only prays for them by himself, but even in his epistles inserts his prayer. This is a fervent soul. This is proof of the prayers made before also, and at the same time also a proof showing that it was not his choice that they did not go to them. As if he had said, May God himself cut short the temptations that everywhere distract us, so that we may come directly to you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound. Do you see the unrestrainable madness of love that is shown by his words? Even as we also toward you, he says, our part is already done. We pray that yours may be done. Do you see how he wishes love to be extended, not only toward one another, but everywhere? For this truly is the nature of godly love, that it embraces all. If you love one, but do not love this other one, it is human love, but such is not our love. Verse 13, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He shows that love produces advantage to those who do the loving, not to those who are loved. I wish, he says, that this love may abound, that there may be no blemish, he does not say to establish you, but your hearts, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Matthew fifteen nineteen. For it is possible, without doing anything, to be a bad man. As, for example, to have envy, unbelief, deceit, to rejoice at evils, not to be loving, to hold perverted doctrines, all these things are of the heart. And to be pure of these things is holiness. For chastity is properly called holiness, since fornication and adultery is also uncleanness. But universally, all sin is uncleanness, and every virtue is purity. For blessed, it is said, are the pure in heart. Matthew 5.8 By the pure, he means those who are in every way pure. For other things also know how to pollute the soul, and no less than lust. For that wickedness defiles the soul. Hear the prophet saying, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness. Jeremiah 4.14 And again, wash you, make you clean, put away the wickedness from your souls. Isaiah 1.16 He did not say only fornications, so that not just fornication, but other things also defile the soul. To establish your hearts he says, unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Therefore, Christ will then be a judge, but not before him only, but also before the Father we will stand to be judged. Or does he mean this, to be unblameable before God, as he always says, in the sight of God, for this is a sincere virtue, not in the sight of men? It is love, then, that makes them unblameable, for it does make men really unblameable. 
And once, when I was discussing this with someone and saying that love makes men unblameable and that love to our neighbor does not suffer any mention of sin, and in my discussion going over and pursuing all the rest, one of my acquaintances interrupting said, What then of fornication? Is it not possible both to love and to commit fornication? And it is indeed from love that this sin springs. Covetousness, indeed, and adultery, and envy, and secret plans, and, and everything of this sort can, from the love of one's neighbor, be stopped. But how about lust? He said. I therefore told him that even this sin love can stop. For if a man should love a woman that commits fornication, he will endeavor both to draw her away from other men, and also not to add himself to her sins. So that sinning in fornication with a woman is actually the path of one who hates her with whom he commits the fornication. But one who truly loved her would move her away from that sinful practice. And there is not, there is not any sin which the power of love, like fire, cannot consume. For it is easier for a piece of wood to resist a great bonfire than for the nature of sin to resist the power of love. Let us plant this in our own souls, that we may stand with all the saints, for they all please God by their love to their neighbor. Why was Abel slain, and yet he did not slay, from his love to his brother? He could not even consider such a thought. Why did the destructive pest of envy enter into Cain? For I will no longer call him the brother of Abel, because the foundations of love had not been firmly fixed in him. Why did the sons of Noah obtain a good report? Was it not because they passionately loved their father and did not want to see him exposed? And why was the other cursed? Was it not from his lack of love? And why did Abraham obtain a good report? Was it not from love in doing what he did concerning his nephew? For he prayed and interceded even for the Sodomites. For strongly, strongly were the saints affected with love and with sympathy for others. Paul, he that was bold in the face of fire, hard as steel, firm and unshaken, on every side attacked, focused on the fear of God, and inflexible. For who, said he, will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Romans 8.35 He that was bold in the face of all these things, and of earth and sea, he that laughed to scorn the gates of death, whom nothing ever withstood, he, when he saw the tears of some whom he loved, was so broken and crushed, the man made of steel, that he did not even conceal his feelings, but said straight away, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? Acts 21.13 What do you say? Tell me. Had a tear the power to crush that soul of steel? Yes. He says, for I hold out against all things except love. This prevails over me and subdues me. 
This is the mind of God. A shipwrecked man, lost in ocean water, but it did not crush him, but a few tears crushed him. What are you doing, weeping and crushing my heart? For great is the force of love. Do you not see him again weeping? Why do you weep? Tell me. By the space of three years, he says, I ceased not to admonish everyone night and day with tears. Acts twenty thirty one. From his great love, he feared that some deceit should be introduced among them. And again, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Second Corinthians 2, 4. And what about Joseph? Tell me, that firm one who stood up against so great a tyranny, who appears so noble against so great a flame of love, who so outbattled and overcame the madness of his mistress. For I'm sure Potiphar's wife had much to charm him, a beautiful person, the pride of a powerful woman, the expense of her garments, the fragrance of her perfumes. For all these things know how to soften the soul. Words even more soft than all the rest. For you know that she who loves, and so passionately, nothing so low that she will not bring herself to say it. For she had begun to beg him. For so broken was this woman, though wearing gold, and being of royal dignity, that she threw herself at the knees of the captive boy. And perhaps we can imagine even begging him, weeping and clasping his knees. And she had recourse to do this not once and a second time, but often. He saw her eyes shining most brilliantly. We can imagine that she used all the charms she possessed to capture Joseph. As wishing by many nets to catch the Lamb of Christ... Who knows what techniques she attempted to use on Joseph? Yet, nevertheless, this inflexible, this firm man, this man who was not moved by sin when he saw his brothers, who had betrayed him away, who had thrown him into a pit, who had sold him, who had even wished to murder him, who were the causes both of the prison and the honor, when he heard from them how they had deceived their father. For, we said, it says that one was devoured by a wild beast, Genesis thirty-seven twenty. He was broken, softened, crushed, and he wept, it says. And not being able to bear his feelings, he went in and composed himself, Genesis 43:30, that is, wiped away his tears. What is this? Does a man as tough as you weep, O Joseph? And yet, the present circumstances are deserving not of tears, but of anger and wrath and indignation and great revenge and retribution. You have your enemies in your hands, those brother-killers. You can get your revenge, and it would not be wrong of you to do so, for you did not begin the unjust acts, but defend yourself against those who have done the wrong to you. God has delivered them into your hands. Why do you weep? But he would have said, Far be it that I, who in all things have obtained a good report, should by this memory of wrongs overturn them all. 
It is truly a season for tears. I am not more brutish than beasts. I pour out a drink offering to God. Whatever harm they suffered for doing this to me, I weep, he says, that they ever treated me this way. Let us also imitate Joseph. Let us mourn and weep for those who have injured us. Let us not be angry with them, for truly they are worthy of tears for the punishment and condemnation to which they make themselves guilty of. I know how you now weep, how you rejoice, both admiring Paul and amazed at Joseph, and pronounce them blessed. But if any one has an enemy, let him now take him into recollection, let him bring him to his mind, that while his heart is yet warm with the remembrance of the saints, he may be enabled to dissolve the stubbornness of wrath and to soften what is harsh and callous. I know that after you leave here, after I have stopped speaking, if anything of warmth and love should remain, it will not be as great as it is now while you are listening to me. If anyone, if anyone has become cold, let him dissolve the frost. For the remembrance of injuries is truly frost and ice. But let us invoke the Son of Righteousness. Let us entreat him to send his beams upon us, and there will no longer be thick ice around our hearts, but water to drink. If the fire of the Son of Righteousness has touched our souls, it will leave nothing frozen, nothing hard, nothing burning, nothing unfruitful. It will bring out all things ripe, all things sweet, all things abounding with much pleasure. If we love one another, that beam will also come. Allow me, I beg you, to say these things with earnestness that some one has gone and thrown both his arms around his enemy, has embraced him, has warmly kissed him, has wept. And even if the enemy is a wild beast, a stone, or whatever he is, he will be made gentle by such affectionate kindness. For on what account is he your enemy? Has he insulted you? Yet, he has not really injured you at all. But if you, for the sake of money, should your brother be an enemy to you? Do not let this happen, I beg you. Let us do all away with these matters. It is our season. Let us use it for a good purpose. Let us cut apart the cords of our sins. Before we go away to judgment, let's not judge one another. Let not the sun, it is said, go down upon your wrath. Ephesians 4.26 Let no one put it off. Putting it off produces delays. If you have deferred it today, you will blush all the more. And if you add tomorrow, the shame grows even greater. And if a third day, yet it keeps getting worse. Let us not then put ourselves to shame, but let us forgive. That we may be forgiven. And if we are forgiven we will obtain all blessings through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
I like the way that Chrysostom pulls together this imagery of Joseph and uh, Paul's love and, and, and pointing out that Joseph gets to a place where he is reconciled with his brothers, with his enemies, and just it's something about Paul's love. I, I think that we so often think of Paul, the man of doctrine, and Paul, the man of theology, and Paul, the man of learning, and all these things. Of course, these are all true. But motivating, really underlying all of what Paul does is a passionate, real love for his people and for the churches and people that he planted to grow up. And I think that Chris Awesome does a great job of just reminding us that we who follow God need to have that similar kind of just overwhelming love for our people. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Jake Korn. Jake Korn serves as an army chaplain with his wife, Jennifer, and his kids, Lydia and Ezra. He is a former executive pastor at Switzerland Community Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and has his MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Joel, when we are recording this, I am planning for this to be the last sermon that people will be able to listen to. I don't always know if these things work out, but this should be the last sermon that you hear from Revive Thoughts for this year of 2022. And if I can just make a request, my request is that you be praying for us here at Revive Studios. Pray for uh, what Joel and I are trying to do here with Revive Thoughts, getting these episodes out to people and that we will be successful in continuing to bring many new sermons to people throughout this year and that the Lord would continue bringing people to us uh, that need to hear these episodes. We have had a really good year in 2022. It's been an incredible blessing to be doing what we're doing. Um, Just tons of feedback from people. Uh, We've seen tremendous good growth and just a lot of things setting us up. I'm very excited for where things are headed in 2023. And Elisa's show, Mars and Missionaries, too, be praying for her. They've had a great year as well. Um, But that's that's kind of how I want to wrap this episode. If you guys can be praying and thinking about where we need to go next. uh, that, That would be really appreciated. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.